Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we've been on this journey through our Book of Discipline, which contains our doctrinal standards and our articles of religion. Um, and as I've read to you previously, these cannot be amended or changed, discarded. They are what they are. And if we are to change them, if or even ponder that, we would actually have to disband the denomination. We could not change them or a piece of them. They are kind of set in stone. And so it's important for us to understand what they are because one, they are not changing, and two, because it should provide us comfort that these have maintained our doctrinal standards over the course of now several hundred years. And we've talked about the Trinity, we've talked about the scriptures, and today we're going to talk about everybody's favorite word, sin. We're going to talk about sin because Methodism is known for its peculiar articulation of grace, but you can't appreciate the fullness of grace until we wrestle with the depravity of sin. And so here is what our articles of religion say about sin. There's two of them that I will read to you, Article 7 and Article 8. And before I do, I must preface this with, yes, these are in Old English. Yes, they tend to use the, purely the masculine form of the English language. And also, they represent... The fact that a lot of the people that were writing these in the beginning were of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and they were still slightly salty about no longer being Catholic. So there's a bit of a tone here, which will be very apparent to you, um, but we do not uh, commend to you the tone in which they talk about our Catholic siblings in Christ, but instead to talk about the difference, the divergence in the doctrine here. So Article 7 is of original or birth sin. You may have heard of original sin or birth sin, and this is our position on that. It says, Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but is of the corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness, and of his own nature inclined to evil, and that continually. And Article 8 of Free Will states this, The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. So both of those articles are about our ability to address sinfulness and what sinfulness looks like. So if you are familiar with original sin as articulated first by the Roman Catholic Church, then original sin states that when Adam, and it specifically says Adam, when Adam ate of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that what happened was he incurred guilt. He had broken God's law. God said, do not eat it, and he did, and he incurred guilt for that and that every person thereafter inherited that guilt for that trespass. That's what original sin is. So in the Catholic tradition, 
when a child is born, they are already in need of the baptismal cleansing of the original sin. Long before they commit their own, they have inherited this original sin. This is not the United Methodist understanding of original sin. John Wesley would articulate for us, one of the original founders of the Wesleyan movement, that original sin instead was a corruption of our nature, not an inheriting of guilt. That when Adam and Eve, they were both involved, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened is it, it made them sick, or in a more modern sense, it changed their DNA so that every person thereafter was bent, inclined to sin. And so we understand that infants are not sinners, but that if they live long enough, usually about 18 months, they start to manifest their own will, right? They're really cute till they start biting. They're really adorable till they start swiping things and hitting people with them. And then right about that time when they realize the massive power that they can unleash, we start to try to curb that expression and start to say, no, we're not going to bite and we're not going to hit and we're not going to steal. We start to try to put limits so that they are not continually inclined to fulfilling their own will, which usually leads to trouble, and instead learn to address what God has paved for us, what is right and just and good. And so we have a different understanding of original sin. You have not inherited anybody else's guilt. You are responsible only for your own guilt, which for a lot of us is plenty enough as it is. We don't need anybody else's. And so you are just having to deal with your own sin and the repercussions of your sin instead of having to deal with Adam's or Adam and Eve's, however you want to articulate that, which is a good thing. And you'll notice that it even takes a little shot at the Pelagians. If you'll remember back in the heresy series we did, we talked about Pelagius and Pelagianism, and here you go again. Uh, so then you have free will, Article 8. Free will is important because we, in the Methodist tradition, are called Arminians, not Armenians, that's a different thing, Arminians. We believe in free will as opposed to predestinationalists, uh, and there are a number of uh, mainline Christian denominations that have predestination, which says that when you are born, it is already predetermined by God whether you will be saved or whether you will be condemned. We don't believe that as Methodists. We believe that you have free will, but that free will is a gift of God. It is God's grace that allows you to have that, that you can't do anything without God's grace. You can't have faith. You can't um, call upon God. You're unable to do good works. You can't do any of those things without God's grace. And using the Methodist term, we would call that the prevenient movement, the first, the movement that comes before of God's grace, that you are able to experience that. But why is sin such a problem? Well, when we talk about sin in the universal church of Christianity, regardless of denominations, we're talking about sin in two ways. The first is capital S sin, sin as in the brokenness of humanity. The fact that we are inclined to sinning, that we are bent toward that, that given the choice between our will and God's, we will choose ours almost every time. Because ours is ours, and it usually feels really good in the first few moments of enacting our will, and it's what we want. Why wouldn't we want to do what we want? Instead, we are being called by God's grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit and through the grace of Jesus Christ to choose God's way, which is the way of being righteous, the way of reuniting with the image in which we were first created, that divine image that seeks to bless and not burden, that seeks to heal and not hurt, that seeks to love and not hate. And so we are being asked to set aside our will and reunite it 
with God's, that our lives might reflect God's goodness and grace. But the problem with that is that that big S sin condition of humankind often means that we do things that are wrong without intending to do them. We are trying to bless people, and then sometimes we hurt them unintentionally. Or sometimes it's not even that way. It's together as a community. It can be as a nation. It can be in a government. It can be in an institution. It can be in a society, in a culture, where we're trying to do something good, but without even intending to, sometimes we can hurt other people which is why Methodists believe that we must be continually attuned to who we are and what we are doing. Perhaps there are things that originally were good, but over time have become problematic. And it's our duty to make sure that we are doing the right thing. I can remember over the course of my life, the instructions that I have gotten from doctors has changed vastly. When I was three, I was diagnosed with psoriasis, which at first my parents thought was chickenpox, but then it would never go away. And so it was clearly not that. And at the time, back in 1983, we didn't have pediatric dermatologists. And so I would have to go and see a dermatologist who mostly worked with adults, which is always fun when you go to see a doctor who really doesn't know what to do with a three-year-old. And so everything over the course of my life with the treatment of psoriasis has really been about trial and error. When I was four, my doctor gave us an acid treatment to try to burn it off my skin. Didn't work. Caused a lot of pain, didn't work. Then when I was six, they figured out that light, sunlight, actually helps psoriasis. So then my parents, while I was at the age of six, bought a tanning lamp for me. Because I don't know if you've noticed my skin tone, but that's a good idea. And so for an hour every night, I would lay first on my stomach and then on my back and have to hold still and wear goggles so that I didn't go blind. And my poor father used to read Shel Silverstein poems to me for hours every week in order to help me stay still and treat my psoriasis. But then we discovered something called skin cancer, and they decided not to let me do that anymore. So then they started treating me with topical steroids. Well, you know what happens when you start giving children who are about nine or 10 topical steroids? It's not really good for our growth. That's why I wear tall shoes. That's not it at all. But anyway, the idea is that you want to make sure that you're not counteracting what's supposed to be happening in the body. So then I had topical steroids and they were like, oh, maybe that's not good. Maybe we shouldn't give her topical steroids. So then they gave me a vitamin D treatment. Again, topical treatment that you would rub on your body, which makes your skin look very youthful, but ladies, it also leaches calcium from our bones, right? No woman wants calcium leaching from her bones. And so they were like, this is not a good thing. Do you notice how many treatments have not been good at this point, <laughs> right? Not good, not working. Meanwhile, I'm covered with psoriasis from the top of my head almost completely down to my feet. And so what do you do with this? How do you work through this trying to help, right? But in trying to help, sometimes they burdened. Sometimes they burnt. Sometimes they hurt. But they weren't trying to make me suffer. They were trying to help me. And so eventually what they found out was that there was a new type of topical steroid that wasn't as potent as the er earlier ones and that the benefits could outweigh it. Fortunately for me, I went through puberty and all of that just went away. Fortunately for me. But I continue to talk to people. Most people get psoriasis later in life. They don't get it so young and then have it 
almost completely resolve. They tend to get it and it gets worse as they get older. So I'm able to talk to people about the treatments that we used to have and the things that work and how do we live with that. Because next to a heart condition, there is no other illness or um, disease that you can get in humankind that tends to lower the quality of your life more than psoriasis. Because people look at you like you are a leper. And so throughout my life, I was constantly watching people who were trying to help me, but then it hurt. And so ev what they would do is they would look at it and go, is this working? Is this, is this what we're trying to accomplish? And what they would say is, no, that's not right. And Methodism is asking us to do the same thing with our lives. Is what we were doing 10 years ago still functional today? Is what we were doing last year still fruitful now? These are the kinds of questions we should be asking. We should be looking and saying, yes, obviously we were trying to put things in place to bless. Most of us are not in the habit of trying to institute things to hurt people, especially not in the church. But sometimes we do. We unintentionally sin. And so we have to look closely and determine whether or not we need to change course or we need to be reconciled. What do we need to do to make sure that each and every day, more and more, we are striving to get better rather than staying complacent? That's the, that's the trajectory of Christianity within Methodism. We are trying to get better. To use the Methodist term, we are trying to go on to perfection. Not earthly perfection, but a kind of spiritual perfection where you no longer willfully sin. Notice I didn't say that you won't sin at all, but you can eradicate the things in you that are intentional sinning. You can try to eradicate those things. And so when you see free will, it's important for us to recognize that you are in partnership with God when it comes to your sin, lowercase s. When you are committing something, whether it's a word, deed, or a relationship, when you are committing something that is contrary to the, to the rule and the work and will of God, then it comes time for us to address that in our lives. What are we doing that is not fruitful? What are we doing that is actually hurting people rather than blessing them? And how do we fix that? Well, the good news is you can't. But with God, you can and you shall. And so with God's grace upon you and within you and at work when you are in union with the will of God, then yes, you can start to find yourself able to stand righteous, vertical, upright before God. You are able to start to set aside the things that lead you astray, set aside the things that continually encourage you and perhaps empower you to sin, that you can turn your back on those things and face fully on God, especially because of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so for us, sin is a very practical reality for us. It is truly just part of living life. But you don't have to dwell in a state of sinfulness. You don't have to be resigned to that because the grace of God frees you from that. And if you've ever looked back over your life and you've thought of things, have you ever thought of something that you did once that still makes you cringe now? right? A sin that you've done, something that you did that was like this great mistake, and you look back on it, and you even feel like right now that like it's horrible, right? It's a terrible thing that you have done, and you wish that you could never have done it. You wish that you could just wipe that slate clean. My siblings in Christ, Jesus has already done that for you, has wiped your slate clean, and that's only by the power of God's love, God's unmerited favor, God's mercy for us that we can enjoy 
being liberated from those things. Sometimes the mind has to get on board, but your spirits have already been freed. And we have to learn to think about ourselves differently. But if you could look back over the last year, if you could look back over the last year and you were taking to writing or texting or using whatever form you like to do, if you could make a list of all the sins that you have committed, the ones that you willfully committed and the ones that you didn't mean to commit, and you could write them all down just for a year, imagine how long that list would be. If you're looking for something more manageable, you could start with last week, right? But imagine if you could do it for your entire life, all the years that you have lived, if you could write down all the things that you have done, every little one, and then you could ball it all up and light it on fire and watch it go up in smoke. That is precisely what God has done with our sin. God has liberated us. The Apostle Paul was trying to teach the early Christians this in his letter to the Roman church. He is trying to tell them that even though the Bible records to us that one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, referencing the story and the tradition of Adam and the fall, but so it was that one man's act of righteousness has led to justification and life for all. Imagine if just one person, just one person here, could bring justification and life for all of us. What a gift that would be. But because each and every one of us is in need of justification and eternal life, we can't offer that. So God has offered it in our stead. God has become the perfect sacrifice that all of us might be justified. All of us might have eternal life. And just as one man's disobedience became many for sinners, so it is that one man's obedience will become the will to make us righteous. You'll remember, as recorded in our stained glass window over here, that on the night of his betrayal, Jesus went out into the Garden of Gethsemane after celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And there he knelt in the garden and he prays repeatedly, not my will, but yours be done. It is obedience that he is praying for that night. Help me to be obedient, God the Father, that God the Son might bring justification into the world. Because obedience is not easy. It is a struggle. And even the humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was wrestling with that in the garden that night. Knowing that his earthly suffering would be overshadowed by the glory that would be given through grace to all people, through all time. But that doesn't ease the pain and the suffering of that moment. It doesn't take it away. It's only through reconciliation that we are truly made whole again. And when, when we sin here on earth, on this plane of existence, we affect our relationship with God in heaven. That's why if you were to take a trip through the book of Leviticus, you will find that almost all of the mitzvot, all of the commandments in there, actually begin with, when you hurt someone here on earth, here is how you go about being reconciled how you make them whole, how you work to reestablish the relationship that has been destroyed, and how then you fix your relationship with God through the sacrificial system, the cleansing of ourselves, that we no longer have to be stained by our guilt and sin. 
So repeatedly throughout the Bible, we recognize that sinfulness is a problem. And it is a problem. It's a problem for us individually. It's a problem for us collectively. It's a problem for us in our spheres of influence, whether that's our home, our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, our community, our commonwealth, our nation, our hemisphere, and our world. We are constantly having to deal with the effects of our personal sin, our collective sin, and the sins of others and how they affect us. Sin is the reality of the world. It's an earthly reality. But we are not solely an earthly people. We are a people who have been bought for a price by heaven. We are a people who have been redeemed, who have been cleansed. Just as we poured out the waters of baptism on Julianne this morning at 9 o'clock, so too has God poured out righteousness on us to cleanse us and to allow us to be rejuvenated, to be made new. Could you imagine if you could go back in your life, perhaps to the point where you committed your greatest sin, your biggest mistake, if you could go back and suddenly be washed clean of that and live all the life up until this point today, liberated from that? Might you stand a little taller? Might you feel a little better about yourself and the choices that you have made in this world? But more than that, think to yourself the effects that the cleansing would have had on others. Think about how relationships might not have been destroyed. Think about how the ripple effects of sin might not continue to crash into the lives of others that you love. How different the world might be. Oh, we don't go back in time as Christians and fix things that have happened in the past. But when we don't understand sin and grace, then what we fail to do is to release the chains that bind us there. Every year at Christmas, my mom's a big fan of the Christmas carol, right? And I used to find that sound so obnoxious when Jacob Marley is walking around with the chains. You know, that rattling sound, it's a horrible sound to me. It's just annoying. And every year I'd have to listen to it and it would be like, great, Jacob Marley's here. And the more that I started to think about sinfulness, the more I realized that his chains, they're not just walking around with him. He's chained to things in the past. He can't find peace. He can't find redemption. He can't go anywhere or move on or be resolved in this world because he is chained to his sin of his past. But we are not. You are not the summation and the culmination of your sin and your mistake. You can and have been forgiven. You are set free. And when you realize that, when you realize that sin, capital S, has no power over you, you realize that you have been liberated. You have been set free. Now, there may still be people on this plane who remember your mistakes and they want to make you pay for them, and they are wrong. They are now committing their own sins. Because in the church, we are called to forgive. I love that when Peter was trying to get some doctrinal guidance from Jesus, he decides to ask this question. He goes, Lord, when my brother, another member of the church, sins against me, how many times must I forgive them? 
right? One, two, five. How many times? And Jesus says seven times seven, or in some of the ancient sources, 77. Jesus gives him the number seven, which in the Hebrew scriptures is the number of completion because it took six days and a day of rest to complete Earth's creation in the first creation story. So he says to him, you must do it until it is complete. You must forgive them until completion of forgiveness, which means that they no longer need forgiveness. You cannot withhold forgiveness because you think that you are justified. You cannot put a limit on your grace because God puts no limit on God's. And I'm sure that's not the answer that Peter wanted. You know, Peter spent three years traveling around with some very interesting disciples. Some of their biggest arguments include, who's, my, who's Jesus' favorite? Who gets to have the best seat in heaven? And so when you look at the people that, that Peter was with, maybe he already had foreshadowing that he was going to have a disagreement with one of these people. And so he just wanted to know, how many times, Lord, when can I finally say enough and I'm done? And the answer that comes from Jesus is heartbreaking to the person that wants to be identified by their brokenness. You cannot stay broken, says the Lord. You must forgive, because in forgiveness, you too are liberated. You are no longer shackled to the sins of their past. And your pain and your hurt and your suffering, you can leave there and proceed into a bright and beautiful future that I have paved for you. It's a whole other way of understanding what sin is. Now, there are a lot of people who want to believe in the grace of Jesus Christ. I can prove this to you by the the very difference in how many people come to a Good Friday service versus how many people come to Easter. A lot of people want to be there for the resurrection, but they don't want to be there for the cost of human sin. But here's the good news. Even if you have never been to a Good Friday service, even if you have been to more Easter's than a Good Friday, the grace of the cross is still for you because that is what God believes is right and just and a good thing, always and everywhere, that you should have that grace. It's not only limited. Could you imagine if you got to Jesus when he returned and Jesus was like, you only went to two Good Fridays? I've been to all of them, says Jesus. No, that's not what Jesus says. I have a feeling that when you come before the resurrected Christ, that the answer that we are seeking to, can I be saved, is actually in our response to, do you want to be saved? Do you want this? Do you want this grace? Do you want to come in? Do you want to have everlasting life? Do you want to stay with me for all time? And if we can answer yes, then I believe that that grace is what allows us to do so. We try so hard on earth and on this plane and by earthly standards to ensure that our life meets some kind of metric for whether or not we are worthy. We are not worthy. We are not. Perhaps one thing that I truly agree with in our articulation is that we can do nothing aside from God. This isn't about what we can do, what we will. This isn't about who we are and our virtues and our character. Our salvation, our hope is entirely wrapped up in God and nothing else. Which means 
that you can't mess it up, which means that you can't fall short of the standard because the standard from God is, do you love me and do you want to be forgiven? And if you can answer yes to those, then grace is already yours. And perhaps that's the greatest gift we have to remind the world in Methodism is that God's grace is ours. It is for us. And it is for others. Because there are a lot of people in this world that believe that they are unforgivable. There are a lot of people in this world who think they're unlovable. And as somebody who spent her entire childhood and youth looking like a leper, I will tell you right now that the power of your mind over your spirit is vast. And if you start to think the way people make you feel, then you can be led down a very dark path. But if you start to think about the way God feels about you, then you become a light in this world. And you become a bastion, a beacon. You become the blessing. What you believe about sin is held in union with what you believe about grace. And if you believe that grace is sufficient, that Christ is sufficient, then you have to live that out beyond these walls. You have to show it to others. You have to be willing to forgive them every time they ask until it is completed. And for some of us, we will know it is over when we see the resurrected Christ on the throne. And some of us go, oh dear God, not that long. But the other good news is that God's strength is greater than our own. And just when you think that you have hit your breaking point, where you are running on empty, just when you think that you have no more forgiveness to give, God will give you some of God's. Have my strength. Have my grace. Have my forgiveness. I have enough for all. And that should be what we live out in the days ahead. Unending, unparalleled grace. And if we do, then day by day, sin will start to lose its stranglehold on humanity. That's why we're here, my siblings in Christ. We're here to change the world, not by force, but by faith. We are here to do it, not with leverage, but with love. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.